You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Great to see you in church. Uh, We have 20 minutes to wrap up five weeks of teaching. Are you up for that? (laughs) Wow. Uh, We have been talking about character for the past five weeks, not only in the first three weeks individual character in our character series, but we've been learning the past couple of weeks, what if the church had a character? And it does, in fact. It has a, a character. The church's character, it is, uh, it is the combined character of our individual characters. And we've been saying as a church, what if in 2015 uh, we would be a church where that character, character just emerged? And it, it's reflected in these two metaphors that Jesus uses in Matthew 14, uh, chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. He says, you're the light of the world. You're a city on the hill. And we heard that for the past three weeks. Uh, But what Jesus is saying there, that the watching world will know that there is a God and that Jesus is from God by the degree to which we possess both individual and corporate attractiveness. And so what we've been learning in this series is that if Northside's going to have its own character, what if in 2015 it could have just three character traits that we are gospel sharing, that we are neighbor loving, that we learned about last week and that this week we'll look at that we are world witnessing. What if we could be those three different things? But here's the problem. But here's the problem. The first two traits we've been learning about, uh, by themselves, those first two traits alone are totally insufficient at reaching the world around us. Let me use a silly story to illustrate what I mean. Like say that you are walking down the street and you're coughing. It's the middle of winter. You're walking down the street, you're coughing, and a person comes up to you. And they are coughing and, coughing and spluttering as well and <laughs> spit going everywhere, all over you. And they said, look, I see you're coughing. Uh, you should really go and see my doctor. He's the best there is. He's working wonders for me. <laughs> see, there we've got gospel sharing to some extent. My doctor's the best one there is. We believe that in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and there's neighbour loving they're walking down the street and they've seen that this person is trouble. You're in trouble. They've seen your need. They've pitied that and they've engaged you. But both alone are insufficient. Here's why. When it comes to your Christianity, your Christian life, are you coughing all over your neighbor? Do you splutter? Like if you say that you're a Christian and you're incredibly grumpy... <laughs> If you say that you're a Christian and you're not very loving, if you say that you're a Christian and you're extremely frightened, if you say that you're a Christian and you're incredibly undisciplined, if you say that you're a Christian and these things are happening, what is your life saying about what you believe? That's what it means to be a world witness, a witness to the world. And so this morning, we preachers, we like to stack you with a whole heap of biblical information and then give you a couple of takeaway application points. But I've been stacking you with biblical information for five weeks. So I'm just gonna, the whole sermon is just going to be the two application points. And the two application points this morning, church, is are you individually attractive to those that are around you? Is there an individual attractiveness to your life? But also, is Northside corporately attractive to the world around us? Light of the world, city of the hill. 
First of all, individual attractiveness. Uh, we've been doing the same sermon, the same passage for the past three weeks, so it's good to get a little bit of a, a side commentary on what Jesus is talking about because he even gives you a little bit of a commentary on what he's saying in the final moments of his life before he's about to go to the cross. He says in John chapter 17, verse 16, he says, They're not of the world. He's talking about the disciples even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. It's one of those big Christian words. Here's what I want to get at first about individual attractiveness. Jesus is saying that we are to possess a traumatic beauty. I'll explain what that means in a second. But we're to have a traumatic beauty. He's sending his followers into the world and he's only asking his father for one thing to give the followers, to give his followers. One tool that Jesus gives his followers to reach the world. Does he say, Father, I'm sending them into the world. Could you please give them a good book on how to handle the intellectual objections of the faith? Or I'm sending them into the world. Could you please give them books on evangelism? Or he says, Father, I'm sending them into the world. Could you please give them some great programs? No. What does he say? He says the only thing he asks for is our holiness. Our difference, our distinctiveness. That's what holiness means. Our attractiveness. That's the only thing that he asks for. Let me press you another way here. Look, a lot of you have got friends that you really care about. And you say, they're blind, Sam, to these things of God. Uh, they're, not, they're, not, they're not seeing this Christian life properly. And, or they're in trouble. They're in deep spiritual. I wish they would just wake up. How do I reach them? And some of you have got children and you've got the, the little ones like I do that we pray over each night and pray that they don't get into trouble. And some of you, tragically, you've got kids at the other end of the spectrum and you're pulling your hair out thinking, how can I reach my kids for God? How do I reach them? How do I tell them that his way is the best way to live? I've just got to pray and I feel so helpless. Look, so you look at your children and you want to reach them. You look at your friends and you want to reach them. And Jesus comes into the world and he only has one thing. Let me tell you what Jesus says your friends need from you more than anything else. Let me tell you what Jesus says your co-workers need from you more than anything else. Let me tell you what Jesus says that your family needs more than anything in the world from you else. They need your personal holiness. Your difference, your distinction, your reflection of him. Because that's what attracted people to Jesus, right? It was his courage, it was his wisdom, it was his insight, it was his poise, it was his, it was his calmness, it was his patience, it was his sensitivity. He was unbelievably attractive, right? It was a moral beauty, it was a beautiful thing. And so when he sends you and I into the world to help other people the way that he came to help other people, what's the only thing they need? They need your holiness, they need your difference. Why? Because why else would your friends listen to you? If you're coughing and spluttering your Christianity over them the whole time, how are they going to believe that Jesus Christ is the ultimate doctor that just doesn't heal coughs? And he can do that, by the way. But he heals souls. How will they know that? How will your friends listen to you? How will your children or your co-workers even know what you're talking about unless there is something wonderfully remarkable about your life? Now, is it me or does the average Sydney side of flinch a bit when we talk about holiness? Because what do we think it is? We think it's to be goody two-shoes or to be hoity-toity or to be pious or to be religious, right? But that's not what the Bible says holiness is. It's, it's a wonderful, remarkable beauty. It's the way that it talks about God and the radiance of his character. Oh, there's that character piece again. 
Six, week on, six weeks on the stuff. Ah, now I see why, why we've been talking about this for, for six weeks, because this is what the world needs. You know, I, I, look, this has challenged me personally, because God showed me when I was reading through this, is that what you guys need, church, from me is, is not my words. You need my holiness. I get worried about the aspects of my life that inevitably happen week on week in which I splutter the very Christianity that I'm trying to preach to you. Let me put it another way. The Bible says that the holiness Jesus had was a traumatic beauty. And here's what I meant by it. It was a threatening attractiveness, right? It threatened people. Not only was Jesus' beauty the thing that attracted people to him, but his beauty was actually the thing that riled people up. His beauty was the thing that got him killed in the first place. When people got his beauty in their face, then they pushed him away. Now, that shouldn't surprise you because, look, people who are physically beautiful know this dynamic. And I'm sure some of you here might understand this dynamic. And if there aren't any of you here, then look, just allow me to share on their behalf. Beautiful people know on one hand that if you are drop-dead gorgeous, people are attracted to you. But beautiful people also understand that if you're drop-dead gorgeous, you intimidate people. That on one hand, people want to hang around you. Uh, All sorts of doors open for you. That's what happens in the modelling industry, right? And on the other hand, people want to just stab you in the back. (laughs) And I'm going to watch the movie Mean Girls to understand that if you're under the age of 35. Your traumatic beauty, guys, your holiness is to be attractive to the world around you. That was the dynamic of Jesus' life. It's the dynamic that he expects of your life. And, and so that is how we are going to win the world. Now, the question is, is this a priority for you? Is your holiness a priority for you? Or is it something that you write off? And yet when you see it in the lives of people, when they approach holiness in their areas, uh, it's, it's achievable. I'll give you a practical example. You know, you're thinking, how do I get holiness? To get your holiness is you set yourself apart for the process. That's actually what sanctify means, right? To set yourself apart for something. And so that's what sanctify means. Look, let me give you an example. Ian Thorpe sanctified himself. No, not, I'm not talking about the choice of his fashion in recent years. That was definitely different. But, you know, Thorpe, he says, I'm going to train for the Olympics three years from now. And what does he do? He sets himself wholly apart to that task. Now, does it mean that he only trains for the Olympics? No. He does all sorts of other things. He goes out, he sees friends, he calls people, he goes to a movie. So he's, he's not only training for the Olympics, but he, he's set apart for the Olympics. It means everything is subordinated to that goal. And that means that you're not only doing training, but... If you have a non-training activity, you reference it against that grid. And if it cannot be subordinated to that goal, you ditch it. And so to be set apart for God is to take every part of your life, like an athlete does for the Olympics, where they live is determined by that goal. What they eat is determined by that goal. Who they hang around with is determined by that goal. How much they sleep is determined by that goal. They are sanctified. They're set apart. Holiness is possible. It is in Olympians. And so as we achieve that, we will be attractive to the world around us. The question, the only application after six weeks is, what does your life say about what you truly believe?
Now, the problem with attractive individuals, as I'd well know, is that uh, my sermon on humility is coming in a few weeks' time, by the way. As we've learned, like an, an attractive individual is incredibly intimidating. Incredibly intimidating. And in fact, uh, an attractive individual alone won't win the world. Because what happens is people see a very holy, very attractive Christian person and they write them off and say, that's them. I could never be like that. And so it's insufficient by itself. And that's why Jesus uses the next metaphor after saying that all of you are fireflies. He says, you're the light of the world, you're fireflies, but also at the same time, you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. In the same way, let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus expects us to be corporately visible. He expects us to be a, a, a spiritual Las Vegas. Has anyone ever been had that privilege to drive into Las Vegas at night time? I did. I only ever saw it in the movies and then we did. And you, you know the funny that big beam of light that comes out of the pyramid in the centre of Las Vegas and you've been driving in the desert for eight hours in the dark through the sort of valley of the plains and you come around the corner and it just it blows your mind and, until obviously you get there and you see all the junk on the streets. But from, from a distance, it's incredibly attractive, isn't it? Cities are attractive from a distance. Jesus got that. Now, how many of you have heard this passage before and you... If you've heard it before, you've done it in Sunday school, what do you think it means? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And normally people, the way people interpret it is, if I live a good life and if I do good works, people will see who God is. And yes, that's true to some extent. In fact, I know it's true. But what Jesus is saying about it all, he's saying this here, he's saying people will see the glory of God when they see you as a city. When... When you are the light of the world as a city, when you're an alternate city, you know, he's saying, what if, what if Northside was a visible Las Vegas in the desert that is Sydney? What if they could see that from a distance? Jesus is saying, what if the world could look into our church and see an alternate city inside the city where race relations are happening wonderfully, where people who don't get along are getting along? where people are using their money and their resources in radically generous ways, where the outside world's normally hoarding it and keeping it to themselves. What if we're like that? When they see that, he's saying, we will be traumatically beautiful. When Jesus says to the Father in John 17 here, he says, Father, make them one. That's us he's talking about. Even as we are one, that's them, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That the world might know that you sent me. What's he saying? He's saying, I've always said it, the quality of our community will be the secret to our mission. That how beautiful we look from the outside and the inside will be the degree to which people come to know God. Our community is meant to display another way of doing life, an alternate city, in other words, you all, fireflies, are the light of the world together. See, the trouble with the English language, unless you're from Texas, right, is that we don't have a second person plural that's different from our first person plural. So when Jesus Christ says, you are, you are the light of the world, what he's really saying is, y'all, the light of the world. <laughs> all corporately together, y'all, the light of the world. In other words, we're, we're just meant to be traumatically beautiful together. 
So the question is, what's different about you that's making us together different from the world around us? You say you believe in God. Yes, you say he's the one true God. Yes, you say that he's the ultimate doctor. Yes. Then do we believe that? Do our lives demonstrate that? Do we serve out of that? Now, this is radical because... Look, I want you to know, even though we're saying yes, yes, Sam, I... I, I, I'm not sure if I know many churches like that. And if I'm real with myself deep down, I'm not living like that. And I don't know many people or churches that are around that are this as idealistic as what you're talking about this morning. Let me just say to you this morning that that's how the early Christians lived. A guy called Rodney Stark wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity in which he described the cities of the Greco-Roman Empire in the first couple of centuries when all the plagues swept through them. Have a listen to what he says. He said, Most Christians during the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbours and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this matter and many elders and ministers did as well. And so what's interesting is that Stark's a, Stark's a historian and a sociologist here. And he's trying to figure out what made Christianity explode through the countryside in, the, in its early years. And it's a simple fact that there were many religions and there were many different schools of thought. And there were many different cultures and ethnicities in the Greco-Roman world. And it's very much like what we've got in modern day Sydney but among all of them, Christianity became so popular that it starts small and then it exploded everywhere. And the historians have been asking ever since why, and this is what Stark says. He says, when the cities were falling apart, Christians stayed there and took care of people, even at the cost of their own lives. And when the people got better, they looked up from the blankets and said, what in the world are you doing here? And the Christians said, we're not here for anything. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of sickness. We don't need money. We're here for others. What is that? What was that? Corporate traumatic beauty. They were traumatically beautiful. And Christianity exploded. And as a result, the gospel captured the imagination of the cities. And by AD 30, almost every Roman city in the empire had become Christian. Some of you say this morning, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's all fine. What are we going to do with that? There's, not, you know, there's no plagues today. You know, I've had my immunization, had my shots, praise God. Oh, there are plagues, all right. There's a, there's, a, there's a plague ripping through the youth of our country called internet pornography. 84% of young boys under the age of 16, 60% of young girls under the age of 16 have had some form of exposure to X-rated material. It's not killing them, but it's killing our future sexuality and society. To be a city on a hill and to give us a glimpse means this. What if we were arresting the plague of warped sexuality in our society? What if we could avoid both, on one hand, societies like idolisation of sex that we see in the advertising industry? And what if, on the other hand, we could get over traditional societies' fear of sex and at the same time also exhibit love rather than hostility? 
hostility to people whose sexual preferences and practices are different than us at the time. That's what it means to be a city on a hill. To be radically different from the city around us. There's another plague ripping through our city. It's called the plague of materialism. Ross Gittins, the, you know Ross, he's always on the Sydney Morning Herald, right? March 13th, 2013, in an article where he said, we worship materialism at our own peril. He says this, ask people what's the most important thing in their lives and very few will answer making money and getting rich. Almost everyone will tell you it's their human relationships that matter most. And yet much of the time, that's not the way we behave. Too many of us spend too much time working and making money and too little time enjoying the company of family and friends. We live in an era of heightened materialism where getting and spending crowds out the social and the spiritual. And that's the way most of us order our lives and that's the way governments order our society. They worry about the economy above all else. Pretty true from an, an, an economist. <laughs> to be a city on this hill says, what if we were arresting church the plague of materialism? It's not saying money is a bad thing. Jesus said money's a good thing if it's subordinated to God. What it's saying is, what if we had a community that promoted radically generous commitments of people with their time and their money and their relationships and their living space and all of that to the poor and the weak and those that are different? What if we could arrest that? <sighs> I got more, but we, I said 20-something minutes, right? Okay, you get the picture. We've got to explore this for the rest of the year. Northside, will our community be corporately attractive to the city around us? I mean, practically like this, if anyone sat down with the average Northsider over a cup of tea out in the urban garden this morning once we're finished and sat down next to you and said, how much money are you spending on the poor and giving away and being generous? Now, what would you say? You'd say that's pretty downright nosy. Maybe it is. I'm not trying to justify the question. But the point is this, the watching world may not be asking those questions verbally, but they're certainly asking those questions silently. Anyone who's not a Christian yet is always asking that of our community. They want to see that. They want to see lives that are not spluttering their Christianity, but consistent with what they truly believe. Does the world look at Northside and say, look at how unselfish they are? Does the world look at Northside and say, look at how the races are getting along? Does the world look at Northside and say, look how healthy their families are? Does the world look at Northside and say, look at how generous they are? And until the world can look in to the church, the church, not just ours, but the church throughout Sydney and see an alternate way of doing things, an alternate society, an alternate humanity, an alternate city within the city. Only, only then will we have the life-changing change that we saw in the first century. Only then will we have a life-changing truth and not be spluttering our Christianity. Not coughing over everyone else. So that's the wrap-up. Church, like, could this be possible? I, I know it is because I see glimpses of it all the time. I see it happening. Saying that to someone in the foyer last week as we look around the differences and the dynamic of this community. It's already happening, by the way. But could it be possible? Could, could we just, I don't know, could you be with me and just be, just have a kingdom naivety? You know what I mean? Just not... 
Maybe it's just a little bit of my youthfulness and some of you saying, Sam, just wait till you get a few more years under your belt. I don't know. I just want to live life believing that what Jesus said was true and declaring that and preaching that and living that in the desperate hope that we would understand, church, that his command to be witnesses is a corporate one and that he invites you and I into a drama of traumatic beauty. The world's watching Some church somewhere in Sydney has to start standing up and doing this. And it's you. You're fireflies. You're the light of the world. But he says we're more than that. We're a city on a hill. We're a holy Las Vegas. We're sanctified Las Vegas. We're Las Vegas without the grittiness and the grottiness when you get inside the city. So fireflies, as the song goes, let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. All around the neighbourhood, I'm going to let it shine. Hide around under, under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let's pray.